In verse 11, hear the word of the Lord. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've gathered us here on this Easter Sunday to meditate on, to reflect on the hope of the resurrection. We pray that you would be our teacher, you, that you would open our eyes to understand these words in the scriptures, that you would point us to the hope that is in Jesus, that you would give us faith. Would your Holy Spirit be our teacher now? Open our hearts. Give us joy. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, today we are celebrating Easter, the day of Jesus' resurrection, and asking the question, what is the significance of Jesus rising from the dead? And uh, several years ago, I was having coffee with a friend of mine down at uh, Woods Coffee down on Boulevard. He's a man that I would meet with every week. He was a, a professor up at Western, and we would talk about you know, philosophy and history and culture and spirituality and religion and church life. He was not a Christian. And every week we had these rich conversations. And the, this one day that we were having coffee, we were talking particularly about education. He, that's what he uh, teaches at, at Western is education. And, uh, and we were saying how, you know, a person's view of education comes from their view of nature, their view of history, their view of God, their view of society. All these things shape your you know, your worldview shapes your view of education. And so he said to me, well, what is your worldview? So I said, well, I, you know, I believe that the world was made by God. The whole universe was made by God. And the reason humans are different than all the animals, because humans have been made in the image of God, but humans have rebelled against God. And that's why there's all this violence and suffering in the world. But God sent Jesus, who died on the cross for our sins. So as I was telling him all this, you know, he's kind of looking interestedly, say, okay, I understand what you're saying. And then I said these words, and then I believe that Jesus' body was raised from the dead, and that at the end of history, all the, those who belong to Jesus, their bodies are going to be raised to the, from the dead, and God will live with them in, the, in a new earth and a new creation forever. Now, when I said that, a little smirk came on his face. He said, bodies rising from the dead. Wow. I've... I really don't know how I could ever possibly believe something like that. That is so absurd and so strange. 
Now you might see, you know, an academic guy hearing about my, my deeply treasured faith and smirking at me, and you might think, well, that's kind of condescending. It's not condescending. It's the right thing to do. You should not hear about Easter, about bodies rising from the dead with a straight faith and just taking it very seriously. You should be smirking. You should be smiling. You might be laughing. And it could be the smirk of an academic or it could be the laughter of a child. Which one is it? But it's strange and absurd. And the question that we have is the God who made this strange and absurd world, who made you strange and absurd, if he acted... If he did something in the world, would it be something that's very rational, very predictable? Or would it be something where you say, that is weird. What would he do? He would do something weird. That's what Easter is about. And that's why the, the mark of the earliest Christians was joy. Because this event that was so strange, bodies rising from the dead, was so strange, so absurd, but it was so good. And it was so hopeful that their lives became marked with joy. And so it's strange, but what does it mean? And so uh, this little story from the Gospel of Luke, which isn't about Jesus' resurrection, but it's about his raising of a, a dead man from the dead. It's a little preview of what his resurrection meant. And it answers two fundamental questions for us. What is the gift of resurrection? And who is the giver of resurrection? And as we read through these few verses I just read for you, there are a number of details in that story that kind of color and fill out the meaning of Easter. And so that is what we're going to talk about this morning. So these two questions. And the first is this. What is the gift of resurrection? And there's three answers to that question in this passage. The gift of resurrection is the healing of relationships, the healing of the body, and the healing of nature. So first, resurrection is the healing of relationships. Now this passage I just read to you is a story about a funeral procession that was coming out of a small town called Nain. That Jesus came upon this funeral procession and he interrupted and he stopped it. And then he raised the dead man from the dead, you know, right in front of everyone. But what's interesting about the passage is Luke, who's recording this, does not focus on the man who was raised from the dead so much, but who does he focus on? He focuses on the mother of the man. You'll notice that in verse 12 where it says this, As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother. And she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. The story is about the mother. And then he raises the man from the dead and it says in verse 15, and the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. Now why is Luke focusing on the mother? Well, it's because the tragedy of death is that death is the enemy of loving relationships. Love bonds people together, and death rips people apart. And so, you know, for many of us, when we think about dying or we think about people we love dying, the worst part about it isn't actually, you know, our bodies decaying or our bodies falling apart. It's that we're going to lose these people that we want to be with, and we long to be with them, and death is ripping apart those relationships. 
And so the logic is this, that if there is a God who's the defining mark of God is love, and God came into this world to work in this world, he would be restoring relationships of love that would have to look like the reversal of death. Because there's nothing that tears apart relationships so terribly as death. And actually, about once a year, I like to quote a book by a French philosopher named Luc Ferry. And if you turn to page five in your bulletin, I put a little quote for you from Luc Ferry's book, A Brief History of Thought. Luc Ferry's an atheist who has written this book. It's kind of a summary of philosophy all the way from the ancient Greeks up to the deconstructionists of the 20th century. And he says that the purpose of philosophy throughout history is to answer this one question, what do you do with death? How do you answer death? And at the, in the closing pages of his book, he makes this comment. You might object that compared to the doctrine of Christianity, whose promise of the resurrection of the body means that we shall be reunited with those we love after death. You see how he ties together resurrection and relationship. A humanism without metaphysics, that's kind of his secular worldview, is small beer. I grant you that amongst the available doctrines of salvation, nothing can compete with Christianity. That's an amazing statement. He does a review of how all, all philosophers throughout history have tried to answer death, and he says no one can answer it like Jesus Christ. But then he goes on to say, provided you are a believer. And he says, for him, Christianity is simply too good to be true. And that means that when you hear about the resurrection, there's only two options. You can't just say, oh, yeah, that's an interesting thing that you believe in. You either need to laugh at it and smirk at it like an academic, or you need to laugh at it like a child and say, I can't wait to be a participate in the renewal of all things. Those are the two options. And the question for us is, which will be us? Will we have the childlike hope that Jesus calls us to. Now, one of the reasons that resurrection is able to heal relationships is because resurrection has a particular respect for individual human beings. And uh, my family and I have been listening to uh, an Avett Brothers album that has a song in it about dying called No Hard Feelings. It's a beautiful song. And it's talking about, it reflects on what will it be like to die. And there are a couple lines in it where this is what they say. Will I join the ocean blue? You know, when I die, will I join the ocean blue? Or run into the Savior true and shake hands laughing? Which will it be? When I die, will I just kind of become one with the ocean and become one with the oneness of being in nature? Or... Will I shake hands with the Savior and laugh with him? These are two very different visions of a life to come. Um, am I being absorbed into the oneness of being? The, being a drop in the ocean of existence means that you can't shake hands laughing. You don't hug. You don't kiss. You don't feast and play and sing you don't make things, you don't play instruments, you don't garden, you don't run, you don't play. All of these things that are 
essential to what it means to be human, human flourishing. The, humaning of, the flourishing of an individual happened through the resurrection of a body. You need a body to do all those things. And that's the second gift of the resurrection. It's not only the healing of relationships, it's the healing of the human body. And from the earliest statements of what Christians believe, actually, we're going to say this statement, the Apostles' Creed, after the sermon. Christians from the earliest centuries have said, we believe in the resurrection of the body. Not just the resurrection of the soul, the resurrection of the body. And you see that in this passage where in verse 14 it says, Then Jesus came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. Jesus was not conjuring up his soul to talk to his spirit. He was resurrecting his life. He was giving newness to his, to his body. He wasn't a ghost. And this is a particularly true, actually, if you look at the story of when Jesus was raised from the dead, he goes and talks to his disciples and he's very insistent. Touch my hands, touch my side. Give me a piece of fish to eat. I am not a ghost. Ghosts don't eat fish. Ghosts don't, you can't touch ghosts on the side. I am a body. And the reason that this is important is because death not only rips apart relationships, but death rips apart the human person. The Bible says that each one of us is a psychosomatic union. It means you are a soul-body union. That's what it, you are a soul-body union made in the image of God. You shine to the world something of who God is by, by the union of your soul and body. And when you die, what happens? Your body and soul are ripped apart. There is a violence being done to your person at death. And, um, and the Christian hope is this, that when a person dies in Christ, their body goes into the ground and their soul goes to heaven to be with God. But there is coming a day when God will do for Jesus' people what he did for Jesus. And our souls and bodies will be reunited and we will be, and God will flood this earth and this creation with his presence and he will make all things new. And this is the wild hope of Christians is not just that my soul will be in heaven with God, but my body will live in his presence for endless ages. Now, if we are all drops in the ocean of being, there is no importance of the individual person. The individual person doesn't matter. But the resurrection says your face, your voice, all your little quirks and your personality, your loves, your uniqueness, they cannot be erased. They should not be erased. But they should be renewed and charged with the love of God and filled with the love of God. You become yourself in the resurrection. And you need your body to be yourself. And that's why Christians throughout history have gone into cultures and said that individual people matter. The poor and their bodies matter. The disabled and their bodies matter. Other ethnic groups, people who are different races than we are, they matter. Their bodies matter. And actually, Luke Ferry, the atheist who I just quoted a minute ago, earlier in that book, he says this exact, that exact thing. This is what he says. In Christianity, the idea of the equality of all human beings makes its first appearance. And Christianity was to become the precursor of modern democracy. We see today how civilizations that have not experienced Christianity have, a gr have great difficulties in fostering democratic regimes because the notion of equality is not so deep-rooted. 
Christianity basically invented human rights because it says that individual people and their bodies matter and have dignity and have value. So here's the gift of the resurrection. Two things so far is a promise of the healing of relationships, the healing of our persons when the great violence is done to our body and soul at death. There's one more gift. Is the healing of nature itself, the healing of the whole creation. And in this passage from Luke, there's a strange line in verse 13 where it says, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Now, if you're at a funeral and a widow has just lost her only son, you probably shouldn't say that to her. You know, stop crying. Why are you crying? And you might say, well, the reason Jesus said that because he knew he was going to raise her son from the dead. So that's why she said stop weeping. But actually, you know, Jesus had a friend who died, his friend Lazarus. And Jesus raised him from the dead as well. But did Jesus cry? If you know that story, it says that Jesus wept. He sobbed over his friend. So why is Jesus saying to this woman, no tears here? Well, Jesus' miracles, all of his miracles are not just little bits of magic that he does. His miracles are lessons. They teach us something about his kingdom and about who he is. And at the very end of the Bible, when the Bible describes the day of resurrection, when God will do for us what he first did for Jesus on a small scale, but he will do for the whole creation, this is how it's described in Revelation chapter 21. Hear these beautiful words. Behold... The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as, as their God. You hear God coming and flooding his creation with his presence. He's going to come live with us. And then it says this, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. What Jesus is doing in this little scene, in this small town, you know, outside of Nazareth, up in Galilee, I think this town has like 200 people in it today. And there's a little funeral procession that no one cares about. He takes that little scene and says, I'm going to paint a picture for you of where the world is going and what the future is of the renewal of all things. And he says, don't cry. Because there's coming a time when every tear and every sorrow will be wiped away. And I'm painting a picture of it right now. Now I'll tell you why this makes sense. Why does it make sense that this would be the future of our world? Well, I think because most of us sense a certain ambivalence about our world. You know, on the one hand, most of us say, nature is so beautiful. I mean, how long could you spend enjoying this earth? I mean, just think of climbing every mountain, you got to jump in every lake. You got to go to every continent, visit every place, go on every hike, meet all the people. I mean, every person that you, that you could be fascinated with. All the things that you could learn. You know, learn the cello and the violin and you learn, you know, think of all the flavors and all the combinations of foods tied together. This world is so charged with pleasures. And we say, I, I won't even scratch it in a lifetime. And if I spent a million years doing everything that you could do in this world, I'd just start over again. And I could start back at the beginning and doing those again in millions upon millions. A really, an eternity is possible here. And we say, this place is so incredibly beautiful. But on the other hand, this place is so immensely frustrating. 
It's filled with evil. It's filled with suffering. It's filled with disappointment. It's filled with broken relationships. It's filled with hatred and violence. And many of us also say at the same time, I love being in this place. And some of us say, I hate being in this place. I, you know, I have to suffer through a whole life. When will it be over? It's amazing that we can have two such strong feelings about the same place. G.K. Chesterton puts it this way. We have to feel the universe at once as an ogre's castle to be stormed. It's a place of evil that needs to be fought against. And yet, as our own cottage to which we can return at evening. There's a world we have to fight against and a world that's our home at the same time. And the gospel tells us that the true story of this world is that the Son of God has come to take upon himself all the evil and suffering of this broken world. That was his death on the cross. And Jesus' resurrection is the beginning of a new creation where all things will be set right. And so it's hard to imagine, but what Easter is about is that not only our relationships and individual persons will be healed, but nature itself will be healed. And God will one day flood this world with his presence and we will be with him forever. And so to be a Christian means that you have this vision of a future world living inside of you. And so whatever hardship or suffering you face, you say, I know that this is coming. I will wait on God. And, you know, how do we want to see our communities transformed? It's this vision of a future healed world. And we want to say, well, let's bring the healed world now. Jesus says, pray for your kingdom to come into earth now the way it is. Now, some of you will hear that and say, okay, wow, beautiful vision healing of our bodies, healing of relationships, healing of nature. It's so broad and so vast. But I know that you Christians say that the only way you can have a part of that is by believing in Jesus, which seems so narrow. Why do you have to believe in Jesus, this guy who lived 2,000 years ago, to have a, 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 a place in this? And I'll tell you why. It's because Jesus is the only one who's even pretending to offer us something like that. Who else is offering you the healing of the body or the healing of nature? Who else has any credibility? I'll tell you, uh, any academics in our, uh, you know, in our universities, they will not offer you the healing of all things or the resurrection of the body or the healing. They, who could offer that? In Eastern religions will not offer you that. The ancient Greeks said that the body was a prison. You want to get away from your body. No one is even pretending to offer you such a thing except for Jesus Christ. And so that's why we must come to him. It is, he is the one who says, I am the resurrection of the, and the life. He is the son of God. And all these things only come true in him. Which leads to our second question. First, what is the gift of resurrection? It's a breathtaking vision of the renewal of all things. But the second question is, who is the giver of resurrection? And part of the reason that I think our generation uh, doesn't take the hope of the resurrection seriously is because I think we live in a cynical uh, generation. You know, a century ago, the big critique of the resurrection was that it was unscientific. You know, scientific age had come about and people say, you know, how can we as modern people believe in bodies coming back from the dead? My experience of our generation, there's still some of that. But I think many people begin to now say, you know, I don't know. 
God's all powerful. I guess if he wants to raise people from the dead, he could do it. That's not my big problem. The big problem for me is, is the God of the Bible good? If I spent eternity, would I want to spend eternity with the God of the Bible? Does the God of the Bible really care about relationships or, the, or people's bodies or care about nature? And so a century ago, people were asking, is God powerful? Can he even do this? Now we are asking, is God good? And both of these doubts are addressed in verse 13 of this passage. So first, the question, is he powerful? How can I, as an intellectual person, believe something like resurrection or the renewal of all things is possible? Well, you'll notice in this passage how Jesus is referred to as Lord. You see that there in verse 13? When the Lord saw her. Now, it's strange for Luke to refer to Jesus as the Lord. He usually doesn't use that until after Jesus' resurrection. And so what Luke is saying is this episode is a preview about what's going to happen to Jesus and what's going to happen to the whole creation. And the analogy that the Bible uses for this preview is the language of a first fruits, which is an agricultural analogy. The first fruits in a harvest were the first fruits that came out and they were the first to become ripened. And based on how good the first fruits were, they will tell you how good the harvest was going to be. And the Bible tells us that Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits. It tells you what the future is going to look like. You want to know what the renewal of all things looks like? Look at Jesus. Look at his resurrection. And the reason this is important is that for many of us, when we hear about resurrection, the healing of nature, we say, you know, I love to hear about that. But we can't just believe in fairy tales. Why should I hope in something like this where there's no evidence that it's true? Is it just blind faith? Well, the insistence of the Bible is that there is evidence. The evidence that there will be a renewal of all things is because it's already happened once in Jesus. It happened in history. We know when. We know where. We know who Pontius Pilate was that crucified Jesus. We have the record of the eyewitnesses. Not just one eyewitness, many eyewitnesses. It was a public event where Jesus was raised from the dead and then beginning of the new creation already happened in the old creation. This is our evidence and this is our confidence. And the reason we can say, I know that God can do this is because he's already done it once. But the second question is, not just is God powerful, but is he good? And the other thing about Jesus being called Lord in this passage is it tells us that Jesus is the strange God who made the world become a man. And so if you wonder, you say, you know, I don't even know what God is like. He's invisible. He's mysterious. How could I ever know that a God who is invisible and created the world is good? How could I ever know what he's like? Well, the Bible tells us if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Jesus is him. And look at what God is like in verse 13, what it says again. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And said to her, do not weep. What is God like? God sees. God sees the hurting. God sees the broken relationships. God sees the poor. This woman, she's a widow. That's in the ancient world. If you're a widow, you're one of the most vulnerable people in society. Who Her husband's dead and now her only son who could care for her and protect her is, is dead as well. She's vulnerable. He sees all these things and is compassionate. 
And the gospel tells us that he not only sees the brokenness of the world, but he entered into the brokenness, the betrayal. He became poor. He was crucified. He became a part of the brokenness. And if the God who made the world is like Jesus, we can only say that he is good. He can be trusted. Now let me ask you this. If there really is a God who is both powerful and good, and he looked down on this world with all of its sadness and death and sickness and violence and brokenness, what would he do? All of us know he would heal it. And he is healing it. It began in Jesus. It is continuing through communities like this in every ethnic group, in every nation around the world where his resurrection life is transforming people's lives. And it will eventually be complete in the renewal of all things. So the question for each one of us this morning is, do you have that hope in you to have a share in the renewal of all things? And what do you need to do to have that hope in you? The Bible says you must behold God in the person of Christ, that he is powerful and good, and say in your heart, I believe. And Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, bids each one of us to trust in that power and goodness today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you for such a wild and beautiful hope. the resurrection of the body, the renewal of all things, that you will come and dwell with us. Lord, give us endurance here as we look forward to that hope, as we look back to the resurrection of Jesus and believe that our share in that resurrection will come in the future. Teach us about these things, we pray in Christ's name, amen.